0: It shouldn't take people being murdered for us to realize that there are real deep and entrenched problems in our nation. But when people do, we absolutely have to take all steps necessary to beat back and beat down the inherently unjust and inherently undemocratic tendencies that emerge over and over again in the country.
1: Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. In this episode, I spoke with Adrian Shropshire, a longtime community organizer, leader, and the founder and executive director of Black Pack, an important organization that works to develop sustainable infrastructure for Black political engagement. We had a good conversation about Adrienne's leadership story and her work in LA and New York City, and how she came to start Black Pack and its affiliated organizations and what they do. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Adrienne Shropshire of Black Pack. Adrian, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography?
0: Sure, I'm Adrian Shropshire, and I am the executive director of Black Pack and the Affiliated Black Progressive Action Coalition. I am originally from the West Coast, which I, I believe that everyone knows because I uh, try and represent. The 206, which is Seattle as much as possible, but also spent my college years and a number of years, almost 20 years actually living in in South Los Angeles, which is where I actually um, began my my organizing life. And so I have two places, I guess that I call home. One is Seattle um, and run is the Crenshaw District.
1: You mentioned college. Where'd you go?
0: So I went to the University of Southern California. My kids are now in in college, so I have a just finished her sophomore year daughter, literally spent a year and a half of her college life in her bedroom (laughs) learning. I have have Um, a first
1: year who just is just two exams away from doing the same thing. Yeah. It's been pretty uh, painful.
0: It was it was rough. Yeah. Um, and then a son who just graduated from high school and is about to go away to college too. And so through this process of like, you know, the, all the entire college application process and the like waiting and nervousness about getting in, it made me think about my, my process to get into college, which was essentially, I, I was like, I'm going to USC. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody wants
1: to go there now. Yeah.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah well, apparently who knew? Um, yeah. I applied there. I applied to some other schools, too. But I was definitely like, I'm going to USC, um, partly because I believed at some point in my life that I would be a journalist, and I wanted to go to their journalism school. Um, that didn't end up panning out, but stayed in Los Angeles for nearly 20 years.
1: What did you study as a college student?
0: I studied anthropology. Um, and so you know, my, my kids often ask me, do you use your college degree? Um, <laughs> and I say, kind of. Right, like I think that there is a great deal about politics that is absolutely about you know understanding um the cultural dynamics of you know a society that's absolutely about understanding um how worldview right is shaped and developed, that is about understanding the structures and systems that people feel like um, is a part of who they are, what makes up their society, so kinda, but you know not really. <laughs>
1: You mentioned getting into activism in L.A. Did you come from a family that was political? What was the background before you got there in that in that area?
0: No, I didn't. You know, this exercise that happens in movement circles, right? When there are gatherings and people say, you know, uh, tell us the moment that you were politicized. Right. And my response is always, well, I was born and I was black And so, therefore, I was politicized because that really is the way that most Black folks walk through the world is understanding very clearly who they are as Black people um, in American society. You know, I come from a family of activists, but we were a family who was very clear about who we were as Black people in the world and what that meant and how we showed up, um, what we understood about justice and injustice, um, the ways that that impacted our family. I had all of that, right? Like I had a a political perspective on the world and went to school in LA, you know, graduated, worked for a local um, city council member who had just Come into office at the time in a sort of a a generational shift in L.A. city, um, at least South L.A. uh, politics, went to work for him. And then the uprising happened after the officers were acquitted for beating Rodney King. Um, And I always say that almost every organizer I know, almost every black organizer that I know, their organizing life began in response to police violence and injustice. And that was certainly true for me. So after the uprising, I thought I've learned a lot in working in city government. I had this you know great opportunity to be able to absorb a lot um, in the role that I was playing as a recently graduated you know young person but thought actually the need in our community is much broader and I'm not sure that me staying, um, in City Hall, is really the place that I want to be right now. I'd rather engage in what I am seeing um, on the street. And so left the council office and um, went to start an organization called Agenda with a longtime LA um, strategist organizer, Anthony Siegden. That was sort of my entree into the, the organizing world.
1: Well, that sounds very interesting. And I don't know about that. Tell me about Agenda and Mr. Thigpen,
0: yeah. So you know, agenda, it, it, you know, started because what we saw right in the uh, in the aftermath of um, the Rodney King beating and the acquittals, and th- during the uprising in particular. I mean, it was already clear, but I think perhaps became clear to everyone else as it does, and as we've seen, is that when we look at police violence in particular communities. And one of the things that we know is that those communities experience terrible and sometimes violent relationships with uh, law enforcement. But also there's all these other challenges and all these other issues in the community. And so one of the things that, you know, certainly, hopefully people were struck by and and have seen it since during, um, you know, catastrophic times in communities is you begin to see what the basic needs of people are, right? So people talk about folks looting, I guess, right? What I saw was poor people, who did not have resources to stock stuff in their homes, like we just saw people do during the pandemic, and who were desperate because they needed baby formula and they needed diapers and they needed food. And so um, people needed to do what they needed to do in order to be able to get through those days of the uprising. And so Agenda was sort of in response to that. It was um, both a response to we need vehicles and organizations for people to be able to uh, participate in, to be able to you know, develop and build out what they think uh, is the direction uh, for their community, um, to be able to engage with one another, to be able to engage directly with their elected officials about the broad range of issues um, that the community communities are facing. And that is everything from crime and violence and police um, misconduct to um, economic injustice, right, to educational injustice, um, all the things that we now talk about as structural racism was not only clear for us Um, you know, as organizers at the time in LA and to our community, right, the folks that we were organizing. um, But I think it really created this opportunity for people to realize that they were like-minded folks who wanted to come together and other organizations that were emerging at the same time, right? There was Agenda, um, you know, Anthony Zigpin is a, again, longtime strategist, um, both on the political side and the community organizing side, and he sort of, you know, pulled myself and one other person together to sort of build this organization. But also you have now Representative Karen Bass, um, who was running an organization at the time called the Community Coalition for Substance Abuse Prevention and Treatment, and others. So you saw an emergence of um, organizations that were fundamentally about. Uh, Community organizing fundamentally about bringing together Black and Brown folks to advocate on their own behalf, um, to go to their elected representatives and say, "We know that you have this rebuild LA plan, (laughs) but actually, here is how we would like for you to rebuild our community." And that was, in many ways, you know, kind of transformative. In that since then, we saw this transition or transformation um, of what city government looks like in Los Angeles, right? What the city council looked like really changed um, in those moments, who the mayor could be, right? Really changed in those moments. And also just the emergence of a set of activists, both, um, you know, guided by older activists um, and an emergence of, um, of whole sets of generations at this point um, of younger activists as well.
1: So what was your role with Agenda? How long did you stay there and how did, how did it grow over time?
0: I was there for ten years. We you know started out. We were a three person operation and you know I was an organizer. I you know did the things that that all organizers do. Um, you know we knocked on doors all across south l a We invited people to come and be a part of a leadership team to kind of plan out what we were going to do and develop the campaigns that we were going to lead. I ran uh, our youth program um, for a while because I was young. (laughs) Now, not so much, Um, but I ran our youth program. We developed campaigns that were again about really trying to get to the root causes of the problems in our community so whether that was um you know sort of the early days of the community benefits agreement movement right which is essentially saying to developers if you're going to develop, here are the things that you need to do to make sure that communities benefit from these multi million dollar investments the city government is making, right, through tax breaks, right, to engaging directly in a way that I think that people hadn't with LAPD at the time and the leadership of LAPD about how they engage in communities and what the expectation was. So um, so we developed campaigns, we engaged with you know our elected officials, and we really, more importantly, sort of built this, this space, this home for grassroots people in L.A.? And, and there was another part of your question that I lost. I'm sorry.
1: I guess I asked about how it grew over time.
0: Uh, so, Agenda has evolved and had many, and many forms since. So, I was there for about 10 years. In that period of time, it went from being a South L.A. specific organization to sort of adding on different layers and pieces of the original, you know, cornerstone, um, as some people might say. So, you know, it became a citywide organization. When we first started, what we said was we're not going to engage in electoral politics until we've actually built a base of folks and we've built um, some level of political analysis among our base so that they understand the role of electoral politics in building power. Um, and then we will engage in electoral politics, which eventually, you know, the organization did. And not too far after its uh, launching, um, because we had a big enough base to be able to actually impact uh, politics um, or elections. It, it probably, I, I would say, it became one of the premier kind of organizations in the country that operated at this intersection of community organizing and electoral politics. It grew to, you know, again, have a, a number of different dimensions, including a research arm, um, and ultimately be changed its name, I guess, or sort of evolved to become this thing called scope. And so scope is the thing that exists in LA now. And then that sort of expanded um, after we left, uh, after I left and moved to New York, Anthony had always been moving the organization to sort of e- ever expand itself and bring in more people. And ultimately, it it has grown into a, or added on, I should say, it's not a direct evolution into a statewide organization that's called California Calls right now, that does electoral engagement uh, with, uh, you know, on statewide issues with groups from, um, you know, organizations from around the country. So it's sort of coalitional at this point.
1: Is Anthony still... Active in that?
0: He he is. And Scope still exists, too, on its own and does a a lot of local economic justice and environmental um, issues as well.
1: Well, if you spend a decade sort of from founding, more or less, to growth of an organization, you learn a lot. You learn a lot about how you build an organization of that type. You learn a lot about humans and how they uh, can be organized and what it takes to organize them and, and many other things, who the allies are, who they aren't. Tell me a little bit about the learnings that you picked up along the way.
0: I would say that there are a few. I mean, I think and some I've said, right, um, which is the importance of um, allowing people regular everyday folks right who have their own lived experiences that that give them expertise in a path forward, right? Not just for themselves and their family, but for the community, but providing a space for people to come together and talk about those things is critically important to our democracy. It is what democracy is, right? Um, and that's how I have always seen my work and my role as an organizer is contributing to the the growth and expansion of, of democracy. Um, but giving people that space, not just to, you know, come together and vent, right? Like sometimes that's important, but to really, really learn, right? And learn together to do collective learning, to develop a common analysis, right? And to really think about what are the ways in which we transform our community and what's the path to doing that? Providing that space for people and allowing people, you know, an opportunity um, to grow in that way, to learn how we can influence our government, the role that they play. Another lesson that's sort of tied to that, I think, has been helping people to understand that when we are engaging our government and trying to make it do (laughs) what we need it to do, that it's important to connect all the dots for people, right? Um, So that we don't end up with electorate that thinks that its role in our democracy is simply to show up on election day and cast their ballot and then abdicate all authority and responsibility to those who we've elected. Um, And so a really important lesson, I think, for all of us um, has been that it is insufficient for our organizations to simply be the loyal opposition When it comes to pressuring um, elected officials and our government to do the things that we know that need to be done in order for us to have a just society, but that it requires constant engagement. It requires people to both understand their role as voters and electing people or unelecting people if they're not doing what needs to be done. But then we also have to be in partnership with those people who we elect. We have to be in a relationship that that begins to look like co-governance. Of our democracy. That means engaging with those folks that we left, whether they're our friends, right, or not. I mean, I think one of the things that we often do is we elect people who we really trust, and they may come from our community and we may know them. And so we elect them because they're going to do a good job. And we know that they're going to do a good job. And so we leave them alone. Um, And that's the worst thing that we can do, (laughs) both for them as, uh, you know, people trying to be effective, elected officials, legislators, or executives. um, And the worst thing that we can do for our community, because this essentially says that we are going to allow other people, um, whether they're our friends or not, um, to determine what needs to happen. And that the force that we brought to the table in terms of moving people into elected office, that then is countered by a force that actually is often not in our own interests um, and when we walk away from our friends who we've elected, um, we leave them susceptible to the other forces, right whether it's corporate forces right or whatever when we're not there, someone is right and so um, an important lesson has for for me and to impart really to the the folks that we organize is that our consistent and constant engagement is an absolute necessity.
1: I think any student of history in a city or country knows that things don't only go one way. You can go forward, you can go backwards. You can uh, suffer defeats and setbacks as well as making progress. And when you look back at what LA was like when you got into that game and what it was like, as you've tracked it, Going forward, what do you think the trajectory is?
0: It is hard to talk about a city in isolation from the rest of the forces that shape what happens uh, there. So whether you know it's LA or you know the time that I've now been in New York, right, um, or any of the places that you know that Black Pack has engaged in terms of the work that we've done. There are challenges. We can see lots of progress. You know, I, I I look at LA now, and I think about the people who are running its government, friends, <laughs> many of them, um, the folks who are now elected office. I you know talked about Representative Bass, um, who was both a friend and a mentor. Watching the people that I have. You know, known for now decades, um, who absolutely have the best interests of the people of Los Angeles um, at heart, um, who are going to work tirelessly day and night to make sure that um, there is, you know, some form of, of, of justice and, and equity through the policies that they're able to, to influence at whatever level of government. Like that has all been transformative, and that was the, the thing that I said about what LA City Council looked like when I got there to what it is right now is kind of unbelievable. I always say that, you know, Dick Reardon was the last Republican that could ever be elected mayor of the city of Los Angeles. And, and I believe that, right? It, it, it'd be hard to see um, a Republican elected um, as with, you know, the sort of policies um, that come along with that as mayor of Los Angeles. Um, but there's also, you know, obviously still real issues, right? Did we solve police violence in Los Angeles? Clearly not, right? Were there some incremental kind of you know, reforms that happened? Um, sure. Did it change the fundamental underlying problems that exist with the Los Angeles Police Department? No. Um, we talk about the underlying causes of Challenges in in Black and Brown communities, poverty, and you know low paying jobs, and um, you know lack of uh, services, etc. Grocery stores has, has you know is a big issue. Was an issue when we were there. Remains an issue now. Sort of unbelievable. Those things are still very real. I'm back a lot actually, and we see lots of the way that homelessness, you know, has really been kind of catastrophic in the city. Those sorts of challenges that are fundamentally about how we address um, economic injustice um, in our country, right, are still very much there. And obviously the city itself cannot solve those problems on its own. Now we talk a lot about getting at systemic issues, getting at structural issues, creating policies and law, right, that tries to get at, again, those kind of underlying issues. Those are not problems that can be solved by, you know, one you know, jurisdiction uh, by itself because of all the ways in which our economy is is connected and frankly, not designed (laughs) to solve those problems, right? Our our economy is designed in many ways to exacerbate those problems.
1: No government, no organization can solve all problems. Just trying to keep your own family together is hard enough, even if you're, you know, have good jobs. But there are people with obviously much larger problems that are not the fault of theirs at all. Was Blackpack the next thing for you, or were were there other intervening jobs?
0: No, there was. So Blackpack is about five years old. What I often say is that Blackpack is actually the result of all of the experiences that I have had to date, right? So from what I learned and understood about community organizing and the intersection with electoral politics from my earliest days as an organizer um, to building, you know, coalitions that were bringing grassroots folks, community organizations, labor unions, et cetera, together to a table to think about what can we do to get at some of this these underlying issues that also doesn't have us playing each other off, (laughs) right, as it were, to, you know, helping to think about how we resource the kind of work that, you know, feels very important, which is making sure that organizations across the country, particularly um, organizations of color, have the resources they need to actually build out political programs to build out electoral programs in their model, right? Um, Many organizations, particularly community organizing groups around the country, shied away from and some outright rejected the idea of electoral politics for a long time. Um, And I think that over the last decade, or so groups have really come to understand um, and incorporate the idea that electoral politics is just another playing field, right? To build power and to have influence um, over what happens in our communities. And so um, I've been able to play a role both in helping organizations across the country think about how they build out those strategies, how they add this new dimension on, um, but also been able to um, help fund it, right? To organize money. Um, to go directly to organizations of color who are building out um, this new work for themselves. And some of that is just because of, you know, the the reason why it felt really important to me at some point to begin to organize money and direct that money to help uh, particularly organizations of color do this work is because of the, you know, I always say that the asymmetrical way in which we invest in political organization um, inside the progressive movement, right? We tend to invest political dollars in white-led progressive organizations, and we tend to invest nonprofit C3 dollars, right, in organizations of color. And it creates a dynamic that is unsustainable if we're trying to build multiracial movements. And so for me, it was important to make sure that we were attempting to grow money, organize money to kind of level that playing field so that organizations of color. And then eventually, um, for me, it was investing directly in Black organizations to build build out this power, uh, making sure that they were sitting at the tables where, you know, strategy was happening. They were sitting at the tables where donors were trying to figure out where they should be investing their money to build out uh, political capacity. So it's all of those things that sort of brought uh, me to the point of pulling together what is now Black Pack.
1: So what were some of the places that you gained those experiences or helped direct money or some of the other things you referenced?
0: Yeah, so, you know, probably right around the time of uh, President Obama's second campaign, there was not just organizations, right, who were saying, okay, well, let's think about how we use electoral politics to, um, to actually move the kinds of um, policies that we think we need moved. But I think donors were also trying to understand that as well, right? Like understood because, partly because the president had this incredible grassroots operation, right, that mobilized, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And I think that it, it showed donors in a way um, that just sending proposals and having conversations with them about why community organizing was important. Both of his campaigns helped people, to donors to say, oh, yeah, okay, we kind of, okay, now we kind of get it, right? I mean, yes, you've been telling us that for two decades, but now we kind of get it, right? And so um, we're open to investing in this Integrated at the time, I think people called referred to it as integrated voter engagement, um, which is essentially organizing. <laughs> um, and I think there's probably been seven terms for it since, but it's really just organizing. And so people, donors were willing to um, to really think about how you make sure that we're mobilizing and building a base of progressive voters. What I ended up doing was actually running um, some collaborative funds. You know, donors who wanted to pool their resources together to, one, create a bigger pot, but also as a way to help them learn. It was a really important moment in the movement world where there was a bunch of donors who were like, okay, we don't know all the answers. Um, And we actually want to learn from the people on the ground who do the work. The pooled funds were an opportunity for us to grow the amount of resources that were being invested, um, but also for, um, for donors to really get an understanding of the incredible work that happens in neighborhoods and communities and cities and states around the country through base building organizations. Um, and so I ran a couple of two, three collaborative funds that were really focused on moving money out.
1: What were they called?
0: The last one that I ran was called the, the Black Civic Engagement Fund. And that was specifically about, again, investing in Black organizations around the country to grow their electoral programs. But I ran prior to that, a collaborative fund that was called Skiff that was um, not exclusively focused on organizations of color, but prioritized investing this money in organizations of color, but also progressive groups that were working in communities of color, whether they were black and brown led or not. For some groups, it really was transformative. I mean, this was the first time there was, I think we probably spent in, in the year and a half or so, two years or so that the fund existed, you know, we probably spent around $14 million um, investing in organizations to really take their organizing and their electoral work to the next level. Right. To think about what they needed to do to build enduring infrastructure um, that wasn't simply like, you know, engaging in an election. And then, you know, the kind of what we talk about in terms of boom and bust, right, of funding um, for base building organizations, that there are a bunch of money comes in an election year and then there's none. Right. Um, and then people have to dissolve some of the some of the infrastructure that they, we, they've created. And so part of um, at least the funding that I was committed to was allowing resourcing groups to be able to hold on uh, to the infrastructure that they were able to grow during election cycles.
1: Didn't you spend some time as executive director of Jobs with Justice,
0: I did. So that was the my reference to um, you know building coalitions of community and and labor. That was when I moved to New York from L.A. That's what I came here to do. I came here to to run what was then the New York chapter uh, of Jobs with Justice.
1: So what what's the founding story for Black Pack? How does that? come together?
0: So again, the, the reason why I say it was sort of a culmination of all the things I've ever done is because I was doing some consulting at the time with the political department for SEIU. It was just prior to the 2016 election, right? So in 2015, You know, SEIU has a long commitment of investing in civic engagement work with its partners around the country. And so that's what I had been consulting with them on. You know, as I was talking with Brandon Davis, who was the then political director, and Jerry Hudson, um, who I think um, everyone knows uh, and who's now the secretary general, uh, about, you know, what else needed to be built out, like were there other things that we should be, you know, considering And when we were talking about our partners um, and the folks that we were engaging with and how we might support those partners, you know, one of the things that became clear was that as we were leaving the years of the first black president behind. Right. When we thought about um, his two campaigns and his two terms and we peeled back those layers, there was a real question about what existed in terms of black political infrastructure in the country. We know that we saw heightened black, you know, particip- voter participation during um, his years in office. Um, there were no guarantees that we would continue to see that kind of um, participation. I wanted to try and understand, like, so what do we need to do <laughs> to make sure that the political infrastructure that exists um, is in a position to ensure that we don't see the kinds of ma- any drop off right from from his years in office? We pulled together all the dimensions really from my um, my organizing and my life as a strategist, my life as a donor to uh, ask that question, right? And so we had a series of conversations with local organizations, with statewide organizations, with national organizations, right? With the civil rights and legacy organizations um, and asked that question, um, what What do we have and what do we need and what is missing? Through those conversations, where we arrived was that there's, there's a lot, that exists in terms of infrastructure uh, in Black communities, and there are there were real gaps, and what we had was also not sufficient, right, to be able to hold the kinds of participation that we wanted, but also to expand it and to make sure that we were electing people that were going to do, you know, move the kinds of things that we knew that needed to be moved. Ultimately, what people said was it would be great if there were an organization that could be explicitly political that could do scaled field, that could operate in a way that, you know, we're mobilizing Black voters above and beyond what we need to be able to win, and can do research, right, that can translate that research into a communication strategy, and that can be a place for you know, a set of base building organizations who do this work to to be in relationship to one another, right? So that people aren't feeling isolated in their states or in their cities. And so from that, we sort of decided that we would be that political home, right? That we would sort of be that political organization. And then folks said, well, why, why can't we have a super PAC? Why can't the black community have a super PAC as well? And so let's make Black PAC a super PAC. And so that was through those conversations that we arrived at the, this entity that is now um, Black PAC, and then eventually created B which is you know much more focused on the base building work and the policy and issue work um, that that our partners and our grassroots members want to do.
1: You mentioned up top something Black Progressive Action Coalition. What is that?
0: It's an affiliated C4. And that is, you know, right now, for example, um, BPAC is very much engaged with our, you know, with our members um, across the country and focused on um, helping to make sure that the For the People Act passes. Um, So they are today actually is, I'm I'm here with you and, and they are doing a political education session with folks from around the country about, um, not just about the importance of that bill passing, but also um, the organizing work that um, that our members are going to be doing um, around the country in support of, of that effort.
1: Can you give me a sense of how substantial of an institution or set of institutions you've put together now. So like how many people work there? How much money goes through you? What kind of impact do you have? What's going on?
0: Yeah, I always say we're a small but mighty organization. We have a relatively small core uh, you know, national team that's about six or seven people. We work with partners who implement our programs uh, when, when we implement them um, you know, around the country. So we are five years old now. We have um, engaged um, in every cycle since then, both BPAC and Black right? Um, Black PAC doing a lot of the kind of candidate focused work. Um, we have, over the last four years, I guess three or four years, um, been really focused on the United States Senate. Uh, and that is because, you know, we. Often spend a whole lot of time talking about what happens during presidential elections, and rightfully so, um, but oftentimes um at the expense of other really important races, fundamentally, we believe that if we're going to see significant—and we're there right now, right—like if we're going to see fundamental change in real, you know, policies that try and address structural issues, it cannot happen without the United States Senate. So, probably four years ago, we decided that we would focus on on Senate races, and that actually started um, in Alabama um, in 2017, um, working with partners there on the Doug Jones race. You know, the following year, we engaged in a set of less successful, I would say, Senate races, but were, you know, hard fought everywhere from Indiana to Tennessee to Florida. And then we're actively engaged this cycle as well in North Carolina, in Georgia. And of course those were you know, we had far more success in, in Michigan. Um, so far more success with, you know, with the exception of North Carolina. But the, the Senate has been a primary focus for us. And we feel like we have contributed in, in ways, particularly in terms of engaging black voters, engaging the kind of black voters that no, no one expects to come to the polls. Right, so uh, engaging with rural Black voters, engaging with younger Black voters, engaging with the voters who didn't show up in 2016, right? Which those voters were a primary focus for us um, this year. Sort of bringing them back in Black Pack in terms of uh, scale of of resources. Um, you know, Black Pack probably spent you know somewhere around 45 million. Um, this cycle. The reason why we're a small but mighty national, you know, team is because we really think that it's important to invest in the work that needs to happen um, on the ground. And so whether that's our field operations, whether it is being really thoughtful about the kinds of conversations, the ways in which we're communicating with black voters, whether that's digitally or, you know, through more traditional forms, radio, television, um, but really thinking about how we are reaching the voters that we know need to be reached and using those resources um, to have um, a long-term conversation with them. Like we haven't stopped talking to those voters just because the election ended In November um, or in Georgia ended in January. Like we are still engaged in a conversation with those voters because we believe, as I said earlier, it's important to connect the dots. Like we don't just stop, you know, when the election happens. It's important to make sure that we are pressing to make sure that the things that were priorities during the campaign remain priorities right after the election. So we've elected governors. We've elected. Congress women who we, you know, uh, continue to support in their efforts. We've elected U.S. senators from Michigan to Georgia. So we have an organization that tries to be respectful of the voters, right, who tries to um, understand very clearly the challenges that people are facing. Um, We're not an organization that shows up and knocks on someone's door and says, hey, this person is running for office, vote for them, right? We show up and we have an actual conversation with people about what their needs are, right? What their challenges are in the community. During the pandemic, we obviously had to shift the way that we were uh, engaging people, um, but eventually felt like it was important for us to safely go back out onto the doors um, because we felt like people wanted to have real conversations, not just about what they were challenged with, um, but about, you know, how we were going to make things, you know, change. And so we did. We were probably the first organization in the country to decide that we were going to go back out and start having face-to-face conversations with people um, because we felt it was necessary, right? Like um, elections and um, civic participation our community acts, right, for for Black communities. They are um, a, a way in which we collectivize our power, and it's visual, right, and it's physical, right? Like, we see each other. We There's a reason why we do Souls to the Poles, right? There's a reason why door knocking works in Black communities is because this is our way of this is our civic action, right? It is. And in this moment last year, um, it was a part of our resistance, right? When we think about the protests that were happening um, around um, certainly police violence, but just racial injustice in general, showing up to the polls and engaging in elections is a way that the black community has always shown its resistance. Um, and, and, it was important for us to be able to see people to drive that point um, home and to make people feel like there was this energy that was being um, built. We think we've had success. The real success is in whether or not we can actually pass policies. It's one thing to elect people, and that's great. But if we cannot get those folks to be able to do the work that they need to do to pass the policies that are going to change people's lives, then we actually haven't done the necessary work.
1: I've always a little bit uncomfortable with national political commentators who like to look at the ups and downs and turnout in different parts of the electorate and sort of point figures at different communities. But you know, turnout does vary and often the measurements are not very good, so it's hard to tell. But it seemed like generally you could say there was a drop off in presidential turnout after Obama kind of naturally. And part of that people think was some successful voter suppression tactics from Trump and also just a very negative election uh, generally. And then it seems like it came quite back up for the Biden election. How much do you think that groups, tactics, things like this matter to turnout broadly versus just the bigger things that are going on in politics and the economy, how much difference can we make practitioners in this field?
0: Yeah. I mean, I'll go back to the thing I said earlier in our conversation when you asked what were the lessons that I learned in Los Angeles. Um, And one of those is that it is important for people to be a part of something, right? It's important for people to be able to find each other, particularly in moments of crisis, and to feel like, one, that people have their backs, that people understand what's happening, and people see things the way that they see things, and that there is a collective action that can be taken. And I think that organizations um, provide those vehicles, right, both to make sure that people are informed and to give people a pathway to actually engaging. Yes, there was a drop-off in black voter participation in 2016. And yes, it was for all the reasons, right, that, that you just said, it, there certainly was, you know, a successful propaganda and misinformation, disinformation campaigns targeted at the black community. We know about them both from the Trump campaign and from foreign actors, right? We know about the voter suppression laws it affected people's ability to get to uh, the polls. Um, and we also know that, that some of the propaganda was successful because it lives in truth. Right. Um, And so, yes, black communities certainly were like, well, why should I vote for Democrats when they don't actually do the things that we need them to do? Right. Like all of those sorts of things um, played a role. And then Trump got elected. And when I hear people talk about, you know, that um, administration as having been and continuing to be an existential threat for American democracy, I agree with that and I believe that. And I also know that when there's an existential threat to American democracy, there is a real clear and present danger for Black communities and communities of color, right, across the board, as we have seen. And so Black people were very clear about what a Trump administration would mean for our communities and what it would mean for the country as a whole. And so that's when we talk about the larger forces that move people to action, um, certainly the reality of what we were confronting, because, of course, Black people have seen it before. It's literally in our DNA. Like We know when we see it. We know when it's coming. And we know that there is a way in which we have to respond, right? So Talk about voting as an act of resistance. That's one, obviously, not the only, but one of them. Um, So people are clear about what needs to be done. Part of what BPAC, the Black Progressive Action Coalition, um, part of our response was to create a program called Black Citizenship in Action. It is a series of workshops that we do um, with our partners and with our grassroots leaders across the country that essentially began to, in the in the aftermath of the Trump election, um, to begin to, to look historically um, at the ways in which Black people have responded to existential threats. We were so excited actually when the 1619 Project came out um, because we were like, hey, there's tools. We don't have to create them all. Um, We'll just use the the tools that the 1619 Project has created. Um, But it really was about trying to understand from enslavement to reconstruction, right, to the civil rights movement to now, what are all the ways in which Black communities have had to fight for their citizenship? Because how we understood the Trump era that we still live in is that there is a threat and a constant questioning of Black citizenship in this country. We have to recognize what's happening, whether it is what we began to see people getting the cops called on them for being in Starbucks or bird watching or going to the swimming pool or what, like all of that, in addition to the voter suppression tactics, the questioning of our right to be citizens in this country was what we were once again facing. We needed to think about what was our collective community response to that, but also understand that there is a blueprint right, left by ancestors about what the response can be and what the result of, uh, of that kind of response um, can be. So those larger forces certainly move people, right? And, and I think move people to say, we have to do something, we have to take action. And it is the organizations then that provide ours and many, many others, obviously, that provide the vehicles for people to come together, have these conversations, and then decide what kind of action that we're going to take elections and participating in elections is one. And so I think when you have groups that become, you know, um, homes, right, political homes for uh, Black voters and Black communities in general, um, when you have organizations that are trying to make sure that people have accurate information and the right information, there is an appreciation for that, right? It is appreciation for what community uh, organizations um, like ours provide, right? In terms of trying to make sure that our community has um, a pathway, right? To making the kind of change that that's necessary in this moment.
1: I have a bit of a worry that with Biden in office and sort of a much higher level of competence and less drama that the progressive community relaxes a bit going into 2022, 2024. Is it as easy to raise money as it was going into 2018 in this midterm? Do you think we're still aware enough of the ongoing existential threat that you referenced to get done what we need to get done collectively, not just in your community, but across What all needs to come together to defend a tiny majority in the House and in the Senate and keep us from going backwards fast?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's unfortunate, but fortunately, um, the current iteration of the Republican Party um, will keep all of this front and center, right? So when you have members of the Republican Congress, who want to wipe away January 6th, who want to say things like it was just tourists walking through the Capitol, they keep it front and center. They keep the existential crisis front and center. When you have um, members of Congress um, screaming at other members of Congress as they walk through the halls, calling them cowards and you know, socialists and whatever. We can count um, on
1: the insanity of the Republicans right now.
0: We can count on the increasing insanity of the Republican Party, I think, to um, keep both donors, organizations, and individual citizens clearly focused um, on the fact that we have an existential threat and this clear and present danger from the outlandishness that's happening with this Arizona faux recount, and, you know, being genuinely undemocratic, right, in in almost everything that they do and almost everything that they put forward.
1: Some of the, the laws being passed in states, not just on voting, which we can kind of count on them to attack, make voting harder and target that at particular people that they don't like, but other laws too, just out, you're right, outlandish is, is the word.
0: Well, but still all targeted toward people that they don't like. Right. So when we think about the anti-protest laws that have happened that are clearly unconstitutional. Right. Um, You know, saying that protesters that, that, you know, citizens petitioning their government do not have the right to uh, assemble is you know clearly in contradiction to the constitution the idea that people who don't like the fact that a protest is happening and decide that they want to run over the protesters can't be held liable for attempted murder right like those kinds of things are just really really outrageous and won't stand up right but the fact that they're trying it is really the thing that we all should be worried about
1: They're trying to pass laws like let's tax electric vehicles because we want to favor our oil industry. I mean, things that just make no sense broadly for the country or for the world.
0: Yeah. Taxing electric vehicles, basically punishing people for purchasing uh, electric vehicles in this moment of serious and intense uh, climate change. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I want to ask you this question. What do you think is obvious to you that a lot of people don't know that you wish they understood about our society?
0: I think this gets back to some of uh, our earlier conversation about our inability to, or our our lack of uh, knowledge, understanding, and perspective on our own history. The amount of times, even in my own lifetime, um, where we see history repeating itself, but our country doesn't seem to recognize it as such, right? Um, Whether that is a tax on... Black people's citizenship, whether it is attacks on immigrants, whether it is attacks and violence targeting Asian American communities, restricting women's rights, all of these things that have happened throughout our country's history um, that we allow to repeat without taking the steps that we need to as soon as these, you know, types of injustices appear We should be taking the steps to beat them back down. And there is a blueprint, right, for how to get us on and keep us on the path toward, um, you know, a more perfect union. Uh, But we fail to recognize the signs. And I think last summer also, you know, in many ways, not just opened people's eyes to injustice um, in this country, racial injustice in particular in this country, uh, but really caused people to say, I need to do something about it, right? Um, in places where we wouldn't have suspected that people would be saying, I have to do something about it. It shouldn't take people being murdered for us to realize that there are real deep and entrenched problems in our nation. Um, But when people do, we absolutely have to take all steps necessary to beat back and beat down the inherently unjust and inherently undemocratic tendencies that emerge over and over again in the country. So
1: one of the fault lines that, that sort of illustrates that, I wonder what you think about it, like Another area of of, uh, Republican legislation in certain places, like in Oklahoma, they passed a law that you can't teach anti-racism, right? You can't teach that it's a racist country. I think that there can be a, a reasonable argument about what should be taught and how it should be taught and in what order things should be taught. There are many different truths that coexist about a complicated country with lots of different people with lots of different points of view over time. And we certainly had a far from perfect beginning and we're far from perfect now. My kids should know that. But I also want them to be able to know that it is a great country and it's a country that has a long history of figuring out, albeit too slowly, how to heal itself and you know has gotten better over time and, and hopefully will continue to if we people fight for it. But, but you have the other side really reacting to this real push that's come to try to attack this area of disparity, of racism, and so on. Well, how do you think about that divide, and how can we like, move forward as one people at some point?
0: The idea that we would criminalize the teaching of truth You know, we are actually through the looking glass on some of this stuff. I mean, we're also dealing with people who are unwilling to operate in good faith at all on anything, right? So the idea that somehow there's going to be negotiating points, right, to help folks that we will arrive at some point where the thing that you just said is even a possible conversation. There are many truths. Let's talk about them all, right? Well, I mean, there are a
1: lot of people who will talk. There just are some lunatics, that are in charge of various asylums.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but I guess that, that's, that's really the point, right? That, that we're criminalizing the teaching of truth, um, that there is this sense that we, we don't want to actually talk about the reality of the history of this country, in part because it, you know, I, I think it goes beyond, you know, it makes people uncomfortable and so therefore we shouldn't talk about it. That talking about racism is in fact racism. You know, frankly, that's been for some time this idea that, uh, you know, of the real racists, right, are the people who talk about racism that is now sort of landed in this, you know, both anti-intellectual but anti-truth movement, right, of people who say we don't want to talk about bad things that have happened in this country, obviously, without acknowledging The truth of our past, the truth of this nation's history, we actually can't move forward and heal in the ways that we need to, right? As as a nation, but there is fundamentally this, you know, underlying that all of it. This this real intentionality around how do you create the structures for minority rule in this country. Um, and so the various asylums that you speak of that are being run um, by lunatics at this point are um, all seem to have this as a basis, right? Like some sense of loss of, you know, that white folks are losing things in the country. Um, When One, clearly that's not true. Uh, But also when you begin to take your anxiety around that and legislate around it, um, so that you are ensuring and instilling the the uh, this idea of minority rule, that's obviously not the basis uh, upon which um, the the founding ideals right of this this nation uh, sit upon. So it is partly about not wanting to talk about the truth partly about wanting to deny, right, the history of the country and ultimately about if we don't talk about that, we can define a reality for ourselves that allows a tiny minority of folks in this country. And again, I don't even think it's, I mean, the the, the tiny minority is, you know, within the, you know, white population, this sort of, you know, conspiracy theory driven, small, you know, group of folks in our country who have decided- The, the um, far right- we, The far right, or not even the far, I mean, partly, you know, (laughs) increasingly not just far, right?
1: (laughs) Well, they're far, they're far by any reasonable standards, but there are a lot of them, unfortunately. There are,
0: there are, there are a lot of them, but there, but it is a, it is a vocal group of, you know, of, uh, you know, essentially a minority within, within the country demanding that we all, you know, fall into their fantasy world and that it is not okay for anyone to say uh, that we're not. Um, you know that that the fantasy is not real. All uh, you know, Liz Cheney,
1: Adrian. What keeps you in the fight? I mean, you've been this has been a whole career for you, and these things wear people down. When you stare injustice in the face all the time, it's tiring, and sometimes you just want want to go uh, read a book and and dodge reality. What keeps you on the front lines?
0: It's my legacy. I think that it is the legacy of every American, but it's certainly the legacy of every Black American to make sure that this country moves toward its founding principles, um, that it does right by uh, the people of this country, um, that it is for all of us, um, a place that is truly about justice, truly about democracy, truly about freedom, all of those founding principles. um, And the struggle for that is, is, I see as as part of my legacy. I also believe that people should sit down and read books too, right? I think that that's part of the problem, right? Like that, you know, when we see organizers burning out, um, when we see, you know, organizers um, with, you know, uh, having serious health challenges, you know, it is because Uh, We don't often give ourselves the grace to step aside right? We don't give ourselves um, the privilege of saying I've had enough and I need to um, take some time. Um, and so I, I believe that that all of us who are in the struggle um, have to find those moments where we step out, right? Where we, um, where we give ourselves enough space to say um, all of this injustice and all this pain and suffering, quite frankly, that we see um, is too much and I have to stop. Um, but at the end of the day, I feel like it's both my responsibility to those who came before me and fought um, for the the kinds of progress, right, that we've had in this country and the kinds of kind of, you know, cultural and political shifts that we've needed in this country. It's my responsibility to uphold that, both for them, but also, you know, as as I say, and as many people say, for generations yet unborn, um, this country can be birthed into the nation that we all hope that it might be, but it won't become that, you know, won't be the kind of country that we want future generations to be able to say, wow, they like, how were they? Thinking that way back then, when things are so different now for us, um, you know, if we want that, if we want that to be true, um, if we want to see our democracy survive, if we want to see justice—not just a you know democracy for de- democracy's sake, right—but democracy that is actually grounded in truth, in um, justice, and and equity—then we have to make sure that it becomes that. We have to fight for it on all the levels that generations past have fought for it. Um, and as I, you know, we see many people doing um, today. Uh, so that's, I mean, for me, um, that's why I do it. Um, when it, even when it gets hard um, and, you know, sometimes it's externally hard and sometimes it's internally hard <laughs> with, amongst ourselves. Um, but, you know, I think it's, it's worth it to try and, and actualize the thing, the kind of world, right? The kind of society um, that I believe that, that future generations deserve.
1: Is there a question that I failed to ask that I should have?
0: No, I don't think so. I do feel like... We are at a precarious moment um, in the country. I think Agreed. that and you said this earlier uh, too about, you know, Joe Biden won. And so therefore, you know, it feels like we can take our foot off the, the gas. Um, but I think that next year's election, 2022 is equally important in terms of sending a message about what kind of country we are going to be, how we want to operate <laughs> as Americans. We are in really, really dangerous times. And the country is in no way, in no way out of the woods. Think about the economy, et cetera, as being, you know, needing a comeback. Right. Um, but I, America um, and its democracy actually needs a comeback. And we didn't get it um, just because we elected President Biden. We didn't get it because we held the House and we flipped the Senate barely. Right. So we have to keep that in mind um, that we are And and clearly the assault on truth right, is a very, you know, clear indicator um, that we are way, way far from being out of being out of the woods.
1: I, I couldn't agree more. I, it's exceptionally precarious, I feel. Yeah.
0: yeah. And dangerous for communities of color, I would say. I mean, I think that's it's
1: always the most vulnerable that pay the price first, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we're seeing that.
1: Yeah. Well, it's been really an honor to talk to you. Um,
0: yeah, thank you.
1: Is, is there anything else you want to say?
0: Um, I don't, I don't think so. I was trying to, you know, <laughs> go back in, in my head about like, what. So what, what all have I said? Yeah, <laughs> um, it's hard. But, yeah, <laughs> but I, you know, I, I appreciate, um, you inviting me on. This is, um, this has been fun.
1: That was Adrian Shropshire. She's at blackpack.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.